thought it'd be a good reminder as we started this morning. It is what we are going to be about these next seven to ten weeks that we gather together here on Thursday mornings. We don't want to just become more intellectually informed. Our goal is to read it through, pray it in, live it out, and pass it on. We've always said that our job as men, as God's men, is to be and make disciples. And so we're glad you're going to join us in this little study, and you're going to invite other men, hopefully, to join you. But the goal is not to get us up early on Thursdays. The goal is not to go through some intellectual exercise. The goal isn't even to go through some spiritual discipline. The spiritual disciplines are never an end in of themselves. They are a means to an end that we might be the men that God wants us to be. If we want to man up, we've got to humble ourselves before the word of God. That's what we believe this is. This isn't just a collection of good ideas. It's the very spoken word of God. And when you go to study God's word, you go to ask it to absolutely transform you. You go to put yourself before it and see where your life is inconsistent with what a God who loves you, who cares for you, who wants it to go well with you. I mean, we've had a lot of fun. I guess I, I wouldn't call it fun. There's been a lot of folks having fun with Victoria Olstein these last several weeks with uh, the, the nonsense that she said down there about God just wants you to be happy. Let me just round the corner on that a little bit. And let me just tell you, I, I am not an expert on Osteen theology. What I know of it, I'm not impressed with. But what I will tell you is maybe she just got her tongue tied And if I'm going to be incredibly gracious to her, maybe she was trying to say what she was not really equipped or prepared to say, which is when you do what God wants you to do, God's intention is to bless you, not to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise and sometimes drift out of places like that, not to prosper you in the fleeting temporal sense. But let me just quote to you from Joshua written by the Holy Spirit. This book of the law should not depart from your mouth. But you should meditate, it, meditate on it day and night so that you might be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. It is a glory to a dad to shepherd a young son so that he lives his life wisely so he's not scarred by the foolishness of youthfulness. It's a glory for a father to teach his son wisdom and to put his son on a path of life. God does want our lives not to be happy in the fleeting human sense, but he does, as it says all through Deuteronomy, when Moses is wrapping up his ministry, I want it to go well with you. And so I don't know what Victoria was up to. I don't really know what she and Joel are doing. That's God's business. When I hear something come out from down there anywhere else that I think is consistent with God's word, we will speak to it. And I have heard enough that I'm concerned. But I'm not really concerned with Houston. I'm concerned with right here. I'm concerned with what I do in response to the word of God and how I rightly represent and teach the word of God. And that's what we're going to concern ourselves with these next week. We don't want to be men that just go there and learn something. We want to be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we might prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. The Bible says that those that humble themselves before the word of God, he will exalt. In other words, your life is going to be materially different and better. It doesn't mean your wife's going to lose weight, your kids are going to get better grades, and your 40 times going to drop. 
It just means when men and women look at you, they're going to say, that's more of what I think a man should look like than what I typically see. Again, one verse that I misread for years is Romans 3.23. For all men have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I misread it in this way. I used to always think, well, that's why we've got a whooping coming to us. And that's not what Romans 3.23 is saying. Romans 3.23 is saying is, listen, because man has drifted from God, doesn't humble himself before the word of God, isn't shepherded by a loving father, but has given themselves over to a master who's come to steal their manhood, kill their joy, and destroy their life and others that are underneath their leadership. They are not the men that I want them to be. They are not vassal. They are not vice regents. They don't bear my image. They are abusive to women. They are racist. They are competitive with one another. They uh, build sandcastles that they think make them great men. And it is not glorious to see men who live for themselves like some fat, impetuous, uninformed king. A great man gives himself for other people. And let me tell you guys, every single one of us are always left to ourselves, going to drift towards self-exaltation, self-pleasure, and self-love. And that is no fun to be married to that man, shepherded by that man, or led by that man. You tolerate him maybe because he can give you a credit card while you run off to North Park Mall, but you don't love him, and you don't respect him. And men who know God ought to be loved and respected. And so we're going to talk these next weeks about what it means to man up, to be God's man. And what I want to do as we start today is I want to read what is, in my opinion, the core passage of the book of James to remind you what we're supposed to do. We are supposed to read it through. You'll do that because of some peer pressure that we will rightly create in your life these next weeks if you chose to do it. All right? But it's up to you to pray it in and then effectively live it out so that we might be more... Um, aligned with what God says great men always do, which is to connect them with life. It's who he is. We pass it on. We make disciples. We shepherd our kids. We sanctify our wife by the washing of the word. We pray with our wife. We teach our wife God's word. We read the scripture with our wife. We say, what do you think that means? We ask her to complete us when she sees us drift away from being the servant leader in our home. We go back to them when we acknowledge without her saying anything that I have not loved and led you the way you wanted me to love and lead you. I told you I would love you. What I really meant by that is I will seduce you so you give me what I want in the bedroom and tolerate you the rest of the time. Hope you leave me alone on Sunday afternoons. And that's not what godly men should do. And if you want this to be a great church for women, it's got to be a place where great men abide. And we will not be great men if we do not exalt the Lord and humble ourselves before the word. The purpose of this Bible study isn't to give you bubbas and isn't even to give you fellowship. It is to help you see God's word that you might respond to it. Here's the central tenet, the central passage in the book of James. It comes in James chapter one, verse 21 through 25. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, In humility, man, humility looks good on everybody. In humility, receive the word implanted deep in your soul. 
It is able to save your souls. It is able to transform that wicked, corrupt nature and make it a source of life to you. And then it says this. Read it through, pray it in, live it out. Don't be deluded. Don't become intellectually informed. I'm going to say it again. I said it last Sunday. When you go before God's word, you are there to do business. We are to prove ourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude ourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man, a male. That word is male, who looks in a mirror. For once he has looked in the mirror, he has immediately forgotten what he saw, what kind of person he was, and he goes right back to looking just like he did before he was confronted with reality. Now look, and again, in Dallas, Texas, metrosexual America, this verse doesn't mean as much to us because we're a bunch of self-obsessed, crossfit, tailor suit, egomaniacs, all right? Because we want to make each other think that we're impressive. And listen, take care of yourself. Good that you shave and brush your teeth, all right? Run a little wax between them every now and then, boys. Floss, it's all good. But what I want to tell you is if we think that this is talking about how guys, because there's lots of guys here who spend all kinds of money and time making themselves look right. But if you are just an externally transformed person and not internally transformed, you're just putting lipstick on a pig. And that is no fun. And so your wife won't care what your body fat is. She will care that you are not aligned with a loving king who teaches you to be a loving man. Now, what I want to do today is remind you of a great man. In fact, a man that singularly in scriptures is elevated as a guy who has a heart after God. And as soon as I say that, you know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about David. If you've got a Bible, I hope you do. Turn with me to 2 Samuel. And I want to look at David because there's a lot of uh, discussion about what is it about David that made him a man after God's own heart? What makes David that guy? Because David, he had some tough moments. And David's tough moments are when he drifted away from what we're going to make a case today is what made David great. And that's going to be exactly true of us, okay? This is not going to be a one-time decision. It's not going to be an eight-week exercise we're about to go through on Thursday morning. It is a day-by-day, continually, constant abiding with the Word of God. That's why it says... In Psalm 1, that David wrote, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the path of the wicked or sit in the seat of scoffers or stand in the path of sinners, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on that law, he meditates day and night. Remember Joshua 1.8? This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you should meditate on it day and night. Okay, we know those verses. They roll off our tongue, but the goal is not that they would roll off our tongue, is that they would be in humility, received and deeply implanted in our hearts. The reason we as men have trouble is because we put the seed of self-exaltation, the spirit of the age, the culture of Dallas, the acceptable normalcy of being a little better than every other church and every other guy, and we implant that in our heart. And what we want to do here is be men that say, let's go, let's man up. So what's a man who wants to man up do? Well, you're going to find out that what he does is he bows down. That's what a great man does. 
He humbles himself before the mighty hand of God. David was called a man of his own heart uh, after God's own heart. And here is why. In fact, this one event in, um, in Israel's history was so singularly distinctive that when Israel got in trouble years later and they cried out to God for mercy, they pointed back to the fact that they were descendants of David and this one act that he did. And they said, God, remember us. We, we, be, be kind to us. We are David's heritage and legacy. We've come from him. He was our king. And do you remember the kindness that you swore to him because of what? Because David was a man who loved God. And you go, well, Todd, it doesn't sound like he loved God very much. I'm going to find out here in just a minute. He took many wives and concubines. It doesn't sound like he loved God. It was a little bit later after this little passage in 2 Samuel 6 that he took Uriah's wife, killed Uriah to cover it up, moved on with his life like nothing was going on wrong until Nathan showed up. I'm going to show you what David did even when he came to his senses then. Listen, great men are not God. God is God. And that's never an excuse. But you're going to see in David's life a direction of humility. You're going to see some spectacular moments of pride, of self-exaltation, of not living according to the word of the Lord, and it cost David significantly. Let me just say this very quickly. I did a real truth real quick on this, but I'm going to give you about 30 seconds of it. People say, how come God doesn't severely judge men um, when they uh, are overly amorous and have concubines and multiple wives throughout the Old Testament? I would say to you, have you read your Old Testament? I would ask you to give me one example of any guy that had more than one relationship with a woman that it worked out well for him. There isn't one. Every time a guy takes multiple wives, let me just say this. How's it worked out for Abraham for the last several thousand years? That he took Hagar to himself because he didn't believe that God would raise up a son of promise through his wife, Sarah. It's still ripping its way through Syria and Iraq is the answer. We don't always see the effects of sin immediately. A verse I quote to us as guys in the church a lot is Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 11. It says this, because the sin against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of men among them are given fully to do evil. And look, I'm not so ignorant to think there's not some guys in this room right now that are lying with Hagar's, not their Sarah's. And it might be working out well for you. And you may think that no one knows. You may even think God's kind of not paying much attention. Mark my word. God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. And you better deal with it immediately. And the sooner you stop that nonsense, whether your Hagar is a woman in Cleveland or a woman on a website, the better it will go for you. And I'm going to show you what David did, even in his lack of humility, when he gave himself over to Bathsheba. I'll show you what he did that brought him back that God still did not allow him to escape some of the consequence of his choices. David's life was never the same, but his relationship with God was. And that's what we're going to call you to. And then we want to be men that are wise enough to walk with that God and not walk into trouble. And I need you to love me and hold me close and encourage me, not for eight weeks, but every day. Or who knows where this wicked heart will go. I got to, in humility, receive the word of God and plant it in my soul. Anybody else relate to that? That's why we're up early eating bubbas. Okay? That's why we need to encourage each other throughout the day. 
Second Samuel 6. This singular act. David was 30 years old when he became king. The first seven years, he was just king of what was known as southern, um, the southern two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. And then Saul dies. And uh, the men of Israel, the ten tribes of the north, come to David and say, listen, we know who you are. We know that you're God's anointed. We've heard what Samuel said he was going to do. And we want you basically to come be our king. And so David moved at that moment from the southern region where he was reigning as king for those seven years from Hebron up about 15 miles to uh, the town of the Jebusites, which we now know as Jerusalem. And David uh, went up there. The Jebusites had never been run out. Even since they came into the promised land, it was a stronghold. It was a city on a hill that was fortified. And David and his men, his mighty men, came in through a water tunnel that you can walk through to this day and broke into that city and came up underneath the city walls through the water channels and uh, took over and defeated the Jebusites. And then David took that little area, which is just south of what we know today as the Temple Mount where the Dome of the Rock sits, and called that now the city of David. And so he went and took a neutral town that was not affiliated with the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom. So I'm going to be the king of all these tribes and I'm going to serve all these different tribes. And so David, after he establishes himself in that region as the king of Israel at the will of the people, the very first thing that David does is why we are going to see that he is called a man after God's own heart. His first act as king was not to consult other emperors about how to throw a... Um, inaugural ball. David knew that Israel was not living humbly before the Lord. And for the last 120 years, the very center of what God had said was um, going to be the place that he dwelt in the midst of Israel and revealed his will to his people was in what was called the Ark of the Covenant. It was a acacia wood box laid in gold that was in the Holy of Holies that when uh, Eli, who was a wicked priest some 120 years earlier, had been irresponsible with his leadership of the nation, the Philistines came and they took the Ark of the Covenant and they ran away with it. And they uh, mocked Israel because that which represented God dwelling in their midst had been removed from them. Now Saul had been king for 40 years. The Philistines, by the way, put down that little Ark of the Covenant before their God, Dagon. And every time they'd walk in, their God had been knocked over and was bowing before the Ark of the Covenant. And they kept setting it up and they'd come back and knock down. So a bunch of men go, I wonder what's in that box. They lift up that box, 50,000 Philistines died looking in that box. It's where the, some of that uh, nonsense you see in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark come from. You don't open that thing up and look in there, all right? If somebody told you they find it and come take a peek, you might go after you, all right? <laughs> but the Lord said, it's a symbol of my holiness. It's where the word of God is, the holiness of God. And when you come before the holiness of God, you bow before it. You don't just gaze on it out of curiosity. That leads to death and judgment. Can I just say that again? When the word of God is before you, you bow before it in humility. You don't just look at it and move on. 
That's death. And what you do is increase judgment to yourself. All right, I mean, the guy who has a Bible has no advantage of a guy who doesn't have a Bible if he doesn't read it and obey it. In fact, I'll make a case that those of us who have multiple Bibles, we carry them around on our iPhone, we look at them at our ease, are in a worse case than those people who don't have a Bible because we are constantly reading judgment on ourselves, just flippantly gazing at it, looking in the mirror, seeing reality and truth, and acting like we don't care and move on. Woe to us. So David said, we got to go get this ark. Saul, Saul never cared about the glory of God. Saul cared about what? The glory of Saul. And he feared the people. All he wanted to do is make the people like him. David didn't fear the people. Great leaders don't fear the people. Great leaders love the people. They don't live by poles. I mean, it's important to know what people think, but what great leaders do is they do the right thing. I mean, just... I can't help myself but saying that's our problem. Politicians live by polls. Statesmen do what is good for the state. And true biblical statesmen don't come up with their own ideas or some other philosopher's ideas about what good's for the state. They believe what the proverb says, that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. And so they don't redefine life, marriage, morality, kindness, They go, what does the holy word of God say? And they bow themselves before it, and they are stewards of the mysteries of God and servants of Christ. That's what great kings are. What David did is he said, we got to go get that, which is the representation of God's dwelling in our midst, which inside of that were many things, most famously, the, the, the two tablets of stone that Moses brought down off Mount Sinai that represented the morality and holiness of God. And so David and his boys, they go get it. Let's just take a look at it. Let's read a little bit because this story really has two stages to it. It says, now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000 of them. David arose in verse two and went with the people who were with him to Baal Judah. Okay. You might even find in your Bible, Kiriath Jerim, the city of Jars. It's uh, about eight to nine miles just to the west toward the Mediterranean coast. That's where the Ark of the Covenant had been for much of those 120 years. To bring up the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. It's like I said in Exodus chapter 25, it says, there I will meet with you. Right there between the two cherubim that uh, were made of gold that were on either side of that Ark of the Covenant. And God said, there I will be. They placed the Ark of God in a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of the Lord were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood, with lyres, with harps, with tambourines, with castanets and cymbals. I mean, David is going to go, and he is going to lead a parade. And he's going to say, this is what will exalt our nation is when we have God in the middle and center of everything we do. You don't need a king who's a head taller than everybody else. You don't need a good looking, powerful, popular, persuasive, funny, creative mailman. You need somebody who constantly exalts God and who sees himself as a steward of God and as a servant of God in every office in the land. And that ought to start with the king. 
Not with a celebrity leader pastor. Not with an eloquent, good-looking, winsome president. But with a humble leader who's concerned about the glory of God. And so David's leading this little procession, but I want to watch this. David was not paying attention. By the way, I tell you that there was, um, in Deuteronomy 17, it says this, that one of the very first acts of a king, when he became king, the king of Israel, when God said, if you take a king, make sure he does this. He is to take the scrolls of Moses specifically that talked about the holiness of God and the way that men should live in relationship to God. And the king was supposed to have his own copy of the scriptures. And as a king, one of his first acts in Deuteronomy 17, 18, was to sit down and hand copy, now watch this, in the presence of the priests, a copy of the word of God. It wasn't ceremoniously grabbing Abraham Lincoln's Bible and slapping your hand on it for a moment. It was, hey, Prez, we're gonna let you go sit down and hand write out your own copy. And we're going to have people over your back going, don't skip that one, right? Uh, I saw a long time ago when Billy Crystal hosted The Tonight Show one time. Not hosted The Tonight Show. He hosted The Oscars, and he was on The Tonight Show after that. And uh, Johnny Carson, uh, I'll try it again. I think it was Jay Leno <laughs> asked him, okay? Jay Leno asked Billy Crystal. They said, hey, did, were there any jokes you had that you just didn't feel like you could use? And he goes, yeah. He goes, there was one. He goes, I was up there and I was just sitting there watching. He says, you know, during the commercial breaks, there were all the stars, they go out and they're running around and, you know, they start to flash the lights, tell you we're about to come back on live TV. And he said, and I saw Charlton Heston rushing to his seat. This is when Bill Clinton was president of the United States. And, uh, and he said, I saw Charlton Heston quickly getting to his seats. The cameras came back on, the lights were on, and it caught Charlton Heston moving to the seat. And he said, I almost said to myself at that, out loud, hey, it's so great to be here amongst the stars. I just saw Charlton Heston, the star of President Clinton's favorite movies, The Nine Commandments, uh, take a seat right there. And he goes, I just didn't think I should. But it made me laugh. And so here's the thing. This isn't about Bill Clinton. This is about me. And it's not about 10 commandments. It's about every commandment of the Lord. And when the king is writing it down, the priest saying, don't skip that, Wagner. Let's not skip that one. Let's write that one down. And then let's not just write it down. Let's be careful to do according to all that is written in it. And let's surround yourself with godly priests and men that will help you be obedient. Guys, this is why we call you to community. I'm telling you, there's nothing quite so creative as a person in the midst of self-justification. You want to be a guy that has other guys going, hey, man, I love you. There seems to be a little drift from walking the line. If you say you're his, right? That's where that whole theme for the book of James I'm teaching you came from. It was from the Johnny Cash song, Walk the Line. Because you're mine, I walk the line. It changes the way that I live. Well, David had not obviously done that carefully because there's very specific commands about how you move the Ark of the Covenant. To David's credit, nobody had touched the Ark of the Covenant for 120 years. That doesn't mean that he wasn't responsible for knowing. You were never supposed to put the Ark of the Covenant on an Ark. You were supposed to run 
uh, gold-laden poles through the hooks that were on that Ark of the Covenant, and two priests in the front and two priests in the back were supposed to carry it because that is a much more stable mode of transportation than putting that Ark on a cart because you might get on some rocky land like they did when they came to the threshing floor, which is a rocky area that they would beat wheat out to get rid of the shaft. And when it was going across that, it started to tip. And one of the guys that was walking along with it didn't want it to tip. So he reached out and touched it. And God says, you don't touch me. I'm holy and I'm trying to teach you something. You're nothing like me. You desperately need me. And so what happens right here, watch in second Samuel, it says, uh, when they came to the threshing floor of Nikon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God, took hold of it for the oxen, nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah and God struck him down there for his irreverence. Hey man, the guy was just trying to keep the ark from tipping and you know, the, the staff of Moses, some manna, the tablets, which made up the interior of the ark. He didn't want them to go spilling all out. He heard legend about what happens if people look inside of there. Well, anytime you mess with the word of God and don't take it seriously, you're going to see God's going to show it. You want to bring me back in your presence? Then you need to remember this. I am holy. I'm not just a God to be honored ceremoniously. Do you know what's going to happen? There's going to be some guys, and it already happens. There's guys that show up at church every Sunday, and they are not a source of glory and encouragement to their family. Their family is discouraged, and their kids can't wait to get out from underneath their leadership because there is no correlation between their attendance on Sunday and the way they love their mama, lead their family. And they won't love your God because you bring yourself into the presence of God's people or because you have a Bible or because you get up on Thursdays in addition to that. They'll resent God even more because, God, if you're going to let my daddy... Say he knows you, and that's my king, and that king keeps treating women and servants the way he does? What kind of God is that? And God takes it really seriously when we mock and misrepresent his name. Now, look what David gets upset. And God just says this. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Susa. Verse 9, so David was afraid of the Lord that day. That's exactly what God wanted. Hey, David, I just want to remind you who's king. And I want to remind you why you're king. And so what you see here is there is an appropriate fear of the Lord that is established in David's heart early on. That you don't round the corners. You walk the line. And if you want to say you love me and delight in me and want me in the center of what you do, then put me in the center of what you do. Don't just cut me in on 80%. It says David was unwilling anymore to move the ark of the Lord. He goes, we're going to figure out how to move this thing. Again, this isn't the wisdom of David. Hey, so far, look at this. I mean, Saul completely ignored this. David saying, let's get God in the middle of what we're doing. And God saying, okay, we're going to do this. But we're going to do it all the way or we're not going to do it at all. And he brought significant judgment to the people. And David said, all right, let's park that bad boy. Let me go back, pay a little bit more attention how the, we should transport this thing. And we'll try again. And that's exactly what happened. So look here. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite, for three months. And so David, I don't know, I can't prove to you, went back and said, let's just start doing what Deuteronomy 17, 18 says. But maybe he went home and started scribbling down some ideas that that holy God that he wanted in his presence might inform him. So it was told to King David saying, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. Hey, where that ark is, it is leading to blessing. When God's in the center of your home, it does lead to blessing. 
And so it was written that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, so, excuse me, so David went and brought up the ark of the Lord from the house of Obed, verse 12, into the city of David with gladness. He was glad to go get it and put it in the center of the nation. That just like Obed-Edom was blessed, the nation might be blessed. And so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces before they took one more step, the perfect journey, he said, stop right there. He sacrificed, okay, uh, a bull. He said, we're not holy people. And David was starting to show at this particular moment that he understood the holiness of God and, and that he wanted to honor God. And it says that David, verse 14, was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. Now, let me explain what a linen ephod is. Uh, it is a basically uh, singular woven piece of material that often didn't have arms. It's kind of like what an acolyte would wear. Um, over himself. And it created this monolith, this one solid object. In other words, this appearance now of an immaterial presence. It's why pastors used to wear robes because it wasn't about the pastor. He wanted to be almost an invisible monolith behind the one thing that mattered, which is the word of God. That's why he hid behind a lectern. Okay. Now, now what happens a little bit later in our tradition today, the reason we don't do that is it's a symbol of maybe a distancing or separateness or holiness of the pastor and, and some inauthenticity. And so, uh, the Bible doesn't command you to wear an ephod when you preach the word of God. But I want to tell you, it's not a bad idea that when you teach to make sure that what you're trying to do is not make people like you or think you're funny or you're hilarious I had a guy who's a young minister right now, and he goes, Tom, I'm still trying to figure out what it means when people say, man, you did good today. And I go, well, I'll tell you what it should mean. I'll tell you what you guys usually mean when you say that you gave a really good story. It was hilarious. That doesn't mean I did good. It's a humbling thing as a communicator. When you guys remember stories and illustrations, that's not bad. No fault of your own. Jesus taught in stories for a reason because they stick. But if you tell a story and that story doesn't cause something to stick that's more than the story, that doesn't make people love something more than you, the storyteller, you didn't do good today. All right? You do well when you bring people to a place where the word of God is clearly taught and men can decide if they're going to receive it and respond to it. You try and get out of the way and you say it in a way that you're not offensive. The word of God might be. You ought to be as winsome as you can. I preach... Like what I say is going to be that which changes you. And the way I say it isn't going to be what changes you. What I say, if it's the truth of God, is what is a chance to be useful in your life. But the ephod was something that David or priest would wear. And they would put a belt around them. And they would put um, other things over them that became uh, part of the priestly garb. But the ephod is that basically it's a nightshirt. And what David did is in about what was maybe a, a six to seven mile journey. He led a national parade. There, there was undoubtedly maybe a million people lining this road. And David was at the front of the parade, the drum major, dancing wildly, celebrating that God was willing to dwell in the midst of the people. Now, I'm going to stop right here. I'm going to just, just give this to you in a visual. Because this is an incredibly humble thing. What David was going to say is, hey, listen, I'm a servant. I will not stand before God in king's robes. I will take on almost an invisibility before God. I am his priest. 
And this isn't about me being impressive. This is about me delighting in the law of God. Imagine you're king. Strike the silver trumpets, boys. I don't care. Get them out. Can you imagine the king laying off his kingly robes, putting on a monolith, a nightshirt, and leading the nation in a six or seven mile parade, saying, this isn't about me. I know you think I killed Goliath. I didn't kill Goliath. I know you think I'm a mighty king. I'm a shepherd boy. God has sovereignly chosen me to humbly lead you and to delight in him. Saul never did this. This is why David was a man after God's own heart. Because he loved the Lord and cared about the exaltation of the Lord. You go, wait a minute, Todd. I mean, just a little bit later, David took Bathsheba. I mean, just a few chapters after this. Yes, he did. And I'll show you what he did. Just like you're going to do something. We are not perfect people. We're moving towards that. God's going to take us there. That's why we love the Lord. He is the gracious and merciful God who covers a multitude of sins. But we want to pay attention. We want other men around us. We don't want to do what David did. We don't want to become lazy and irresponsible. And it was in the spring, the time of year when kings go to war, when David had gotten lazy and idle. And didn't go where God wanted him to go. And though he had operated with his mighty men, he wasn't with his mighty men. He became isolated and lazy. Started looking at porn right there off the king's castle. And the next thing you know, it took him places he never thought he would go. But I will show you what David did when we wrap up today. After that, let's just look at this little section right here because it's amazing. David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord was shouting with the sound of a trumpet and blast and great gladness. It happened that the ark of the Lord came into the city of David that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window. Do you hear that? Where was she? She wasn't a part of the parade. She was up there, straight back from the pedicurist, manicurist, or a little blue blood, silver spooned, daughter of Saul, concerned about the glory of the king and herself, was sitting up there watching. And it says she despised him in her heart. So they brought in the ark of the Lord and set in its place beside the tent which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. When David finished offering, he goes home, you know. He's all excited, verse 20. It says, when he returned to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today in the eyes of his servants, taking off your kingly garb and all your grandeur and everything we worked so hard for. And you're out there dancing like a fool before schoolgirls and in a linen ephod. Where's your regality? Where's your, where's your greatness? I've heard somebody say it would be like at the national prayer breakfast, the, the president, you know, just deciding... To just you know, take off his suit, get down to his t-shirt, and just say, this is not about the secret service. It's not about me being some imperial president. This is about me getting on my knees. I am just a common man who happens to have an office that's oval, but I am God's servant. And I'm not here just to 
give some ceremonial tip of the hat to this annual event. You need to know something. I know exactly who I am. I'm just a drunk from Midland who God has sovereignty has put in a role for such a time as this. And I am the servant of the Lord, period. And I've got nothing to offer you except to be a steward of the mystery of God. That, my friends, is what our country needs. It's what any country needs. It's what your family needs. This is not about the White House. It's about where you live and who you are. But Michael was not happy. And David said, Michael was before the Lord. What are you talking about? He's the one that chose to honor. We didn't get here. We didn't politic our way to this spot. God and his sovereignty put me here. Above all his house. Your father's house. To appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord. Over Israel before I will celebrate. I will celebrate before the Lord. You know, let me just show you. This is an amazing text. In 1 Chronicles 10, 13, you're going to find out why Saul was not king. Listen to this. This is why Michael's daddy was rejected. 1 Chronicles 10, 13. So Saul died for his trespass, which he committed against the Lord. Are you ready? You don't see if this isn't your trespass. Because of the word of the Lord, which he did not keep. Saul had a Bible and had priests around him just like David. Saul was at the Thursday morning Bible study. Saul went to Watermark. But he did not keep. But he asked counsel of a medium. If there's anything else that you're consulting other than the word of God to inform the way you love and lead your wife and lead your kids, lead your own life, steward your resources, you're not God's king. You don't have a heart after his. He said to Michael, it was before the Lord. And you know something, lady? I'm going to be more lightly esteemed than this, verse 22. And I will be humble in my own eyes. But the maids with whom you have spoken with them, I will be distinguished. David knew that God exalts the humble. In other words, the whole land will see me as a glorious king because I'm not going to be about my kingdom. I'm going to be about God's purposes. So without reading the next verse, what do you think God did to Michael? What's the scripture say? He exalts the proud. Uh, He exalts the humble and he humbles the proud. Michael was his first wife. His trophy wife who had married the stud, but she was barren. This woman had a chance to have her name listed in Matthew 1 as part of the lineage of the very Messiah of God, but it passed right over her. And who did it go to? It went to Bathsheba. Why? Because Bathsheba, though she wasn't a righteous blue blood, she was aware of her sin and she was humble before God, acknowledged her sin. And God would rather an adulterer who is repentant be part of the line of blessing than a self-righteous blue bud who does not humble themselves before him, though they have never slept with another. Let me just show you, in just closing, this little text. Because a little bit later, David did not pay attention. He was faithful for a while, and like any of us will be, if you just go hard seven weeks and then you drift, David had the Bathsheba event. Psalm chapter 40, David says this. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My eyes, my ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin you have not required. Or I'd give it. You don't want me just to go through some religious activity. What you want me to do is to get before the scroll of the book that was written. And delight to do your will. And so here's what I would tell you guys. Maybe you've got a girlfriend in Cleveland. Or maybe you've got a website that you're consistently going to. Or maybe you've got storehouses that you've built up. Or maybe it is a thousand other things that it could be for you. And all I would tell you is God's ready for you to start to delight to do his will. 
David, even in that moment when he reconciled and returned to God, David became an example. Do you know what's so amazing? Psalm 40, the David who had sinned, the adulterer that came to his senses and said, I delight to do your will. When it gets to Hebrews chapter 10 and it's talking about the coming Messiah himself, what you're going to find out is this is the very nature of Messiah. Watch this. This is Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, when he comes into the world, meaning God, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you take no pleasure. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And what was the will of God for his son? That he wouldn't offer up a lot of other things. What did the son of God offer up? himself and said, all I want to do is your will, not my will, but your will. And because of that, because he laid aside his kingly robes and he adorned himself as a servant, he was given the name above all names that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. What did it say? I will be esteemed by those servants that you say will despise me because I won't look like a glorious king. There's no other man that's ever been loved like Jesus. And you will never be loved until you become conformed to the image of Jesus. And that's what we're about to do these next seven to eight weeks. We're about to get after it. We're not going to become guys who are a little bit more informed about truths in James. We're going to become, by his grace, as we take the word of God and receive it and implant it in our souls a little bit more like Jesus. And we will be if we just say this, I delight in to do your will. That is not just a man after God's own heart. That is God's heart. Because God knows his word is holy and true and righteous altogether. I want to close with this. I don't know if you guys know, but there's a tradition. When a certain song is played, that every time you hear it, it is like the national anthem. It's the national anthem of a world. You can't play this song without folks standing up. In fact, if you went back to uh, the coming of the new millennial. There was one song when you went around and you looked at firework displays around the world that was played more than any other song at national events celebrating the new millennial. That song was the apex chorus in what is probably the greatest oratorio that had ever been written by man, Handel's Messiah. Now, it was debuted in Dublin in 1741. A year later, it was uh, in England, and the record, the, the, the story goes that King George II fell asleep during it, and when he heard the triumphant trumpet entry into the Hallelujah Chorus, it startled him, and he thought that they were playing uh, some you know, grand entrance for him, and so he just was startled, and he stood up. Well, when the king stands up, what happens? Everybody stands up. It was a little bit later they played it when Queen Victoria was, was uh, reigning over England, and she went to one of the Handel's um, performances. And she was old in her age in a wheelchair because of severe rheumatoidal arthritis, couldn't stand. And so no one was gonna dishonor the queen because if she didn't stand, they weren't gonna stand because she couldn't stand. But that song started and that queen pushed herself up. She said, I will never sit in the presence of that which exalts my God. And so even that little queen, that little one, that one who stood for the morality and the sweetest time in England's history, stood in the presence of God. And boys, that's what we do. We stand before him. We bow in humble submission to him. And we say, this is not about me. 
this isn't my family, this isn't my business, this isn't my salary, this isn't my day. I'm his son, and I delight to do his will. Let's close by thinking about these words. Men, fellow servants, it's one thing to stand when that song is played. It's another thing to walk with that God and to humbly receive his word in our hearts. That's what we're fixing to do. We're glad you're here. We're at all different stages of understanding he's a God worth serving. And you don't have to pretend here. We want to engage with you. If you're not certain that this God is worth being invisible before and taking off your kingly, self-promoting ways, we'd love to engage with you. But if you, by the grace of God, want to run after his heart and say, I delight to do your will, we're going to get busy. And we're not going to just do it on Thursday mornings or Sundays. We're going to be men that abide and do it and live communally together as we become more glorious as we become more like him. Amen? Amen. Father, I pray that you would let this community help me be attentive to your word. I thank you for the chance to gather today. We want to put you in the very center of our home, not ceremonially. We want to lead people in triumphant rejoicing in a way that people go, oh. What kind of display of affection is that? And it would only make sense if they knew the holiness, the goodness, the provision that is the person of God. And so we thank you that you've shown us that. I pray now we'd be attentive to it. Would you glorify yourself in us? Amen. Amen. All right, boys, have a great week of worship. We'll see you.